Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators and partners, all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hi everybody and welcome to the 10th episode of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. A quick shout out to my dad who I learned this week is our number one international listener. Hi dad, thanks for listening all the way back in Australia. This week we're having a really interesting conversation with Dr. Abby Roper from the City of London University about her work helping those with speech impairments, about the importance of raising awareness of issues and also about the potential for technology to help with therapeutics and research in the future. We hope you enjoy and look forward to next week. Abby, I was wondering if you might just be able to kick us off with a little bit of an introduction um, to yourself and what you're currently working on. So I'm Abby Roper and I'm a speech and language therapist and a researcher and I am based at City, University of London. And I am involved in research projects around technology to support people who've got um, speech and language needs. And the key condition that I work with is something called aphasia. So if I may, I might just give you a little primer about aphasia yeah I was about to ask that's perfect that'd be great just for people who've never heard of aphasia yeah what what is it so aphasia is um an acquired language difficulty that means that it affects people um kind of acutely suddenly after they've been used to having typical speech and language development and the most common cause of it is um, a stroke so um essentially it is a problem with language that results from damage to the brain and the most common cause of damage to the brain is stroke and what happens is that the bits of brain that um, normally govern our language um, get disrupted and get damaged. And uh, suddenly the way that we're used to organising our communication, understanding the world around us and um, expressing things, either in written or spoken form, gets interrupted. And um, the effect is that very suddenly you go from being able to communicate in a sort of naturalistic, typical way, being able to control your environment through speech, have a conversation like this, to varying levels of difficulty in doing that. And um, one um, comparison that you might make if you wanted to try and imagine what this would be like is um, the experience you might have had when you're in a country where you don't speak the language. So your intelligence and intellect and understanding of the world remains exactly the same. And yet you can't negotiate um, your environment as effectively. You can't necessarily understand what someone's saying to you on the street and you can't conjure up all the language to express yourself as richly as you might otherwise normally be able to do. Um, and it can affect reading and writing as well. So it, um, it affects a large number of people. One third of people 
who survive a stroke um, are, uh, live with aphasia as a result. And um, it's something that, so there's around about half a million people in the UK affected by this and estimates of around a couple of million in the US. Um, and what sort of demographics are we looking at of people who are affected by aphasia? So it affects people who've had a stroke. Um, so the typical um, group um, is uh, people over 60. Um, however, stroke can affect people of any ages. And also there's a higher prevalence for um, some different ethnic groups. It's more prevalent in black people, uh, stroke, than uh, for white uh, groups. So largely it's older adults, but given the number of people that stroke affects, um, there are a significant group, uh, number of people of different ages. The other thing is that aphasia can also come as a result of other brain injuries. So if you've had um, a brain injury from a car accident, for example, or a head injury, um, or even dementia can cause um, the symptoms of aphasia, then you might be um, affected. Yeah, uh, as you mentioned, like a significant proportion, but also one that is, is probably growing with an aging population potentially. Um, and would it be fair to say that it, it potentially, because it's the kind of the, the consequence or the follow-on from a stroke, it also potentially impacts people's movements and therefore their body language as well in terms of how they communicate? Yeah, I mean, it does. It's, that's a really important point, actually, is that the um, people with aphasia very often um, experience uh, mobility difficulties as a result of the stroke because the areas of the brain which are affected that affect language often affect the uh, right right hand side of your body as well so a lot of people have something called a hemiplegia or hemiparesis which means that they have reduced function in their right arm and right leg and um, because the majority of people are right-handed this adds an extra challenge in um, then using things like gesture or handwriting or you know technology devices to support your communication further so yeah it it does have um it does have wider implications and similarly those mobility um issues with um uh having full use of your right arm and leg can impact on your ability just to get from a to z so to move around the space to um you know to get out and get communication opportunities so uh, things like you might experience reduced um, social uh, opportunities, for example, for that reason. And in fact, um, there are higher levels. It's, a, it's associated with um, high levels of depression and isolation, perhaps unsurprisingly, but also very sadly. Yeah, no, well, thank you so much for explaining a little bit, you know, in more detail for those who, who may not have been aware. I definitely didn't know um, the kind of extent to which aphasia can impact, like you said, both communication, but also more broadly social opportunities and, and inclusion. So um, obviously a super important area to be working on. Can you give us a bit more insight into what, you know, your day-to-day -day looks like and, and particularly your research, um, what it focuses on? As a speech and language therapist, the um, at the beginning of my kind of work in this area about 10 years ago um, the focus was largely on therapeutic support so looking at um, what sort of rehabilitation opportunities can you provide in the technology sphere so I know that as a speech and language therapist I will have been trained in techniques to support someone to rehabilitate 
their language to regain some of the lost vocabulary, to regain some of the communication um, flexibility um, to allow them to engage and support with the aphasia. Um, and if you kind of think about it like physio, uh, which is kind of a more familiar prospect to a lot of people, um, physio rehabilitation often involves lots and lots of repetition of a specific physical exercise, for example. Well, neurological rehab um, involves similar things. So um, you need to have high levels of repetition um, to effect neurological change to really kind of start to rehabilitate uh, and forge new links between the communication areas in the brain. And one thing that computers are very good at doing is supporting highly repetitive, highly structured tasks. And um, if you couple this with the limited um, provision of face-to-face -face therapy available, it gives you an opportunity to extend the, uh, the rehabilitation opportunities, if you see what I mean for someone. So, so people can do it at home or they can sort of do it on their own time without a therapist present. Precisely. Yeah. So, you know, typically the sort of provision that some people experience um, after they've had a stroke is maybe um, six sessions, one a week for a period of six weeks and about an hour uh, with a speech and language therapist one to one. That's a broad brush. It varies from trust to trust. But sort of on the whole, that's kind of one of the kind of figures that gets reported. Now we know that rehabilitation requires a lot more practice than six hours. And so um, through structured um, computer-based exercises, you have the potential to really supplement and extend the face-to-face -face contact that you have. And as you say, to do it independently and autonomously in your own home, rather than relying on you physically moving to a clinic space to take it, to carry it out. Um, so yeah, initially the therapy, um, technologies that I looked at worked on rehabilitation of apraxia of speech which is when you are struggling to get the volitional movements to make the speech sounds and also aphasia which is when you're trying to find the words to express yourself and over time and, and indeed my um, PhD was then about a novel um, gesture therapy to support people to express themselves who really had problems getting any words out to, uh, to support them to express themselves using key bits of gesture vocabulary that would be commonly understood to somebody who they might encounter in the in the outside world for example so you might have a key gesture for something like drink or car or something like that and it's different from sign language because um, if I was to do um, certain signs for you, for example, unless you're a sign language user, you'd be unlikely to understand those. So it relies on um, kind of more sort of pantomime gesture that could be interpreted um, more generally. So anyway, the, the PhD research was about, um, we've gone from training words now to training gestures. And the point we're at now in the research that I work on is to support actual access to wider communicative engagement. So it's moved more into accessibility because what we've come to learn is that aphasia is a chronic condition. So you can make um, improvements over time through practice, but there are a large number of people living with permanent 
impairment of their language. And um, the implication for that is that that permanent impairment can um, affect your ability to engage with technology, can affect your ability to engage with um, everyday forms of communication. So bringing us up to that most recent project, we're looking at accessibility and understanding what are the barriers to accessing technology and everyday kind of creative communications that um, are so ubiquitous in society now. So when I say that, I mean things like social media, content creation tools, things where you might put out a tweet or you might put out a, a post, a photograph. Um, the research we did at the beginning of the project I'm working on now, which is the Inca project, um, uh, demonstrated that there are meaningful barriers to people with aphasia trying to access and engage this and given that so much of our daily life now and even more so during the past year um, has been carried out online if you factor that in as a, a barrier um, then by exploring how to overcome those barriers um, you can potentially open up a lot of um, opportunities for connection um, and addressing issues of isolation um, people who have aphasia so we've moved away from like specific um, rehabilitation of the issue to uh, making yeah making like social accommodations and kind of um, uh, adjustments to the environment understanding how we can adjust the environment to make it accessible for somebody who's living with this condition awesome I mean I think that's really exciting and I've got a, a ton of questions that follow on from that but I'll try and <laughs> structure them but um, oh. I think that's great because one of the things that you know we've been speaking about with this on this podcast recently is is both a combination of the sort of narratives and stereotypes around disability and i think you know the way in which people presume that if you have a disability or you have you know an impairment of some kind you then don't want to do other types of things that you may previously have right and there's a yeah the kind of presumption there right of somebody who has aphasia might not they don't care about going on Facebook or interacting with their mm. friends or, you know, all those things which sort of seem very commonplace to lots of us, I think, for people who don't have much experience with disability, often seem a little bit, um, uh, you know, out of the scope of what a disabled person would do on a daily basis. And, that, and part of this, um, you know, whole project is to really change how we think about how disabled people, um, what they want to do and their opportunities and the things they want to pursue. Um, and then I guess the second point I think which is interesting is that we often talk a lot about accessibility from a very physical point of view, which is you know definitely um, a problem as well. But the kind mm. of concept that online um, could be inaccessible as well, I think for a lot of people it does you know is, is a little bit foreign. And this uh, a lot of people sort of think, oh well, actually online is probably more accessible because it's you know um, that you don't need a ramp or you don't need a yeah. You know, um, there's, there's a lot more technology um, involved, but this this broader point of if that technology isn't accessible, then it's it's similarly um, uh, exclusionary as a lot of physical spaces. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think there's a couple of things from what you said there. The the approach, it, it, if you think about kind of the different models of disability, you've got the uh, medical model of disability, which looks at kind of um, how can we take um, what we what we conceptualize to be like a typical healthy standard functioning body and system and if somebody has a disability how can we move that disability away and normalize you know in um in inverted commas the um 
situation so that they fit the mold so they can do all the things that other people who don't have that disability can do but then there's obviously the social model um which talks about actually it's the environment which has been built excluding us uh, you know people with disabilities in mind that actually you're trying to make us fit your environment and so the environment should really um take into account the diversity of humanity um much more fairly and like you say um when you think about disability commonly the um concept that we have of disability uh, begins with some sort of physical mobility or um some something physical and and for that reason um communication disabilities are sort of hidden essentially you can't if you encounter somebody uh, face to face you don't at first have a clue that um they might be struggling to communicate with you and um similarly what you see then is this is reflected in the legislation and the accommodations that are made uh, the the accommodations that are made for people with um, communication difficulties in a general context are quite limited um, and um, the legislation for making access for people with communication difficulties is uh, comparatively small when you look at um, provision and consideration uh, that's gone into um, supporting access for other groups for example and yeah I'm I mean, the truth is that these, none of these things actually happen in a vacuum intersectional, you know, we're all um, neither, we're not just entirely one thing or another. Often these do co-occur as we've talked about, you know, you might have a mobility um, issue if you have a stroke and have aphasia as well. Um, but actually um, for a lot of the people who I've worked with across my career who have aphasia, um, their biggest disability if you like to if you want to use the social model the big the thing that has disabled them most within the context of their daily life is the communication more so than yeah. the physical and much like for many people with a physical disability or physical impairment their sort of impairment is conflated and like this is i guess where the disability point and distinction becomes important but like their impairment is often conflated with also uh, an incapacity to do something and often like a, a feebleness or unhealthiness some sort of sickness um do you find that in a similar sense people with you know cognitive impairments or learning difficulties um there's a conflation in terms of also intelligence i like that people think because you know they they communicate in different ways they're uh, unjustifiably but essentially you know less intelligent or less capable as opposed to just like less communicative in the kind of you know conventional sense that, that we expect yeah very much that's a very big issue particularly for people with aphasia um there's a very kind of common um phrase that you see on kind of disability stickers for people who have aphasia um which is aphasia affects language not intellect so um there's a conception that if you meet somebody who can't articulate themselves easily um that they can't necessarily think clearly or make a decision or you know have complex emotions or engage with things and make complex plans and that as you say um that parallels with the kind of notions of feebleness um for people who have a physical disability that you um you're somehow 
your aspirations must be cut smaller. You know, we can't entertain the idea of you living and engaging in the full spectrum of life, as you said, like engaging in all the everyday activities that someone else without that particular disability might engage in because we just don't have the model. We just don't have the, the role models even in society that show that um, you can just engage normally in everyday life if you live with a disability. And I think that's right. There's definitely like, I think, you know, as disability becomes slowly but surely more normalized, it also happens on a spectrum and, and definitely, you know, uh, like I'm a male wheelchair user, like it, in some sense is, is the much more conventional type of disability and therefore um, the negative stereotypes that I get are often confined to particular things. But, but like you said, you know, uh, it's probably not conflating with my ability to think or my like ambitions or things like that as clearly as somebody who has a, a cognitive disability or a cognitive impairment and therefore because they communicate in a different way people read in all these additional things and I think it's very important because um, because we don't speak a lot about it or at least I don't think it's mainstreamly it's discussed in the mainstream there is particularly for people with cognitive impairments much more potential and much more danger of them being, you know, infantilized and, and treated as paternalistically, and then you know a lot of, I guess, the policies and laws you sort of mentioned before. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of scope there for abuse in terms of like supported decision making being thrust upon people who who have capacity just don't have the tools to communicate it. Um, and I think it's a very important shift that we need to start really, you know, talking a bit more about in terms of disability and its different forms and, and what it what the actual you know cause of um, concern, if you will, is rather than sort of just saying because we see X, we think Y, and therefore we'll do Z, which I think a lot of the time happens without much consultation um, of you know the experts or the people involved or the science or, or the you know the lived experience of disabled people particularly. I'm wary of, of um, getting too deep into the specifics of <laughs> aphasia um, and the disability uh, perception because uh, I wanted to talk a little bit also about how you got into this space, Abby. So what sort of you know prompted you to get into this space we often ask you know everybody on the podcast what their innovation inspiration is what really led you to to want to move into this space and to make changes and to really you know um dedicate your career to it yeah well it's only been a journey for me um but it began my dad was in a car accident before um i was born and um uh he'd experienced aphasia as a result and um so he's largely recovered um, to all intents and purposes, got kind of his communication back. Um, for the most part, he has some difficulties finding words now, but um, I always grew up with this tale in my family of my dad waking up after his car accident and thinking in pictures. And this just kind of blew my mind. I was like, what? <laughs> Does that mean I think in words? What? What? And then when I, I studied psychology at A-level and came across aphasia and sort of managed to determine that that's what it, in some forms, he's had, he's had damage to his language centre as a result of that car accident. And um, it had created, in, you know, for him this form of aphasia, uh, which was temporary happily for him for the most part. Um, but it just captured my imagination. It just kind of blew my mind what, yeah, I was like, I didn't even realize that I thought in pictures or words. And, you know, his other experience was that he thought that the people in the hospital who were talking to him were speaking in a foreign language to him. He was like, why are they all, it was in America. So he was like, why are they all speaking in Spanish to me? Like he just had this notion that 
um, he couldn't make sense of why everyone wasn't behaving in the way that he was used to. Um, so I, I discovered what it was at A-level and then my undergrad degree was cognitive science, which is sort of looking at um, combining theories of computing with cognition, understanding cognition. And uh, I was still really interested in this. So I did my final project about aphasia. And then after I'd finished my um, degree, I sort of went to my prof and said, if I wanted to do this, if I wanted to do stuff with aphasia for a living, what could I do? He said, you could become a speech therapist. So it, it took a long time to get on the speech therapy course as a postgrad and everything. And then um, I'd had this kind of technological interest born in, uh, you know, built into me through my degree, my undergrad degree. So I just wanted to combine the, the technology with the aphasia kind of understanding. And then over time, what's happened is, you know, I've just worked with so many amazing people who have aphasia. And what that's really built into me is that however theoretically interesting this topic is, the reality is that it's a lived experience for so many people. And if I'm going to do any, if I'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about this, the, the point of spending a lot of time thinking about it is to surely um, try and understand more about making that situation as bearable and as, you know, optimal as possible for people who are living with aphasia. And so to bring it back to sort of some of the stuff that we were talking about right at the beginning, um, the focus of the work um, which and the research which I've been involved with has increasingly factored in co-design and collaboration and really so much engagement with the community um, uh, and knowing and, and checking in with people with aphasia all throughout the route um, that I think has you know working as a part of a network has become my like collaborative inspiration solving problems as part of a really big group and thinking about what can each of us bring to try and um, explore this um, issue awesome and so what are some of the examples of like through this well one if you can maybe just speak a little bit more about like what the co-designing process looks like in a practical sense like how how are disabled how are people with aphasia you know specifically involved in this process and what sort of interactions do you have with them and you know how often and how engaged etc but then secondly i'd be interested just to hear of you know one example one or two examples that come to mind of how this co-design process has sort of led you onto something that you just like never thought or like wouldn't have come across until you know you actually engage with people who are living this day to day yeah, well, um, there are a number of projects which have come out of the work at City University, where I'm based. And um, the first one was my PhD, which is about the co-designing this gesture therapy. So we developed, um, we had four or five co-designers with aphasia who um, were employed by the university, came in for a, a series of workshop, workshop sessions, working with me as the speech therapist researcher and with a colleagues in human computer interaction design like the developers and things to um, really all be in the same space together and and look at early ideas um, about how might you do gesture recognition this was you know we started off it was 10 years ago this was um, we started by playing a, a game of Wii bowling on the thing to look at you know having a device and you know moving a device around and how is that captured by the computer and um, 
and, and then just sort of coming to find a shared language and a shared understanding of like, who am I, who are you, how do we all fit together and, and what can we do to sort of explore this, um, to then really looking at video recognition of gestures and things over time and then fitting these into um, context about, you know, which gestures are going to be the most useful ones if you're going to practice them, what are the limitations of only being able to gesture with your left hand rather than both hands, you know, how can we convey these ideas if you use um, a one-handed gesture and things like that. So, um, and, and those co-design methods have become more and more embedded over time in the subsequent research projects that we've done. Um, and so we've gotten to the point now where, you know, if you are if you're doing co-design um, with people who communicate, uh, who, who um, have aphasia, um, you need to adjust some of the typical research methods that you might adopt. So there are things in computing called like think alouds, where if you're asking someone to look at a, um, a piece of software, a program, you ask them to write, I'd like you to have a go on this and just talk out loud and tell me what you're thinking. What do you see? What do you think about it? And that's a way that a technology researcher can understand a bit more about what's going on in people's minds when they're using a technology. But that's not practical for somebody who um, struggles to express themselves verbally. So we really looked at right, what can we learn from just doing staged interactions, engagement, modelling. And, and so we've written lots of methods papers about how you can really um, support people with aphasia to engage in all aspects of research. Um, and then we've co-authored papers and co-presented research with people with aphasia, lots of, of videos. Um, so a lot of that is the kind of the methods that we've done. Yeah, great. You asked about particular innovations. Yeah, um, what's something that sort of surprised you or, you know, you, you hadn't thought of, but through this process you were, you know, it was uh, revealed. So there's this great um, project, which I'm um, involved in as a part of the team, but I wasn't directly on the co-design process, but it's such a lovely story. I'd like to share it with you that um, there's a virtual um, world that's been created, um, which is a, a safe online chat room, I suppose, if you like. There's a thing called, um, I think it's called Second Life, which is an online virtual chat room, but that's sort of a public space and you get an avatar and you log in online and you wander around and you encounter different people. Well, um, there was an idea that to support rehabilitation for people with aphasia, you might create um, a specialised online space where someone could virtually log on, meet their virtual therapist, and you could sit and have a discussion. So this allows you to have like um, spoken discussion, but you can't see each other's faces. You just see each other as an avatar, and you can like navigate around an environment. Um, but the aim. For initially for this idea was that um, you would take uh, you would meet your therapist online in person you know, let's say one day uh, an hour a day for five days and you would practice really functional important things to help you rehabilitate so you would practice going to the doctors and asking to get a prescription or you would practice um, you know going to a cafe and ordering a cup of tea Okay, so in theory, this gives you a nice, safe, pretend space to practice these bits of communication. But what happened was when we explored this with um, consultants with aphasia in the team, they were like, yeah, that's interesting. But look, I see that on this, you could put in a disco or you could put in a pizzeria. Like 
Or you could put in like a swimming pool. Like I want to be able to explore that space, that stuff that I don't get to go and explore. And so what had originally been developed with this notion of being a very functional space of being like, yep, let's teach you how to do the basics, the ABCs, developed into this amazing, fantastical, completely absurd, but completely rich and inspiring um, place so that when you have to go for your therapy, now all of a sudden you're going to a desert island and you can go swimming with dolphins and you know hang out with the mermaids you can disco dance you can fly around all these other features and what it meant is that you know these aspects of language which i find so vital like the ability to play and engage and be silly and be funny which normally might not have an outlet if you're sitting in a clinic room you have a completely different concept of um, using your language, exploring and enjoying expressing yourself. So we've got this kind of really rich and slightly, you know, unexpected outcome that's just had really positive, humorous, engaging kind of follow-up research studies that have come out of it. It's been really well received. Awesome. Yeah, and I think that point about the creativity is a great one, you know, that stands more broadly for disabled people who have to spend a lot of their time thinking through creative ways to, to solve problems or barriers that appear, um, but it's, you know, obviously extends into other parts of their life. And people, this, this earlier point where we spoke about if people do have, you know, um, ambitions and dreams and interests and things like that, they're not sort of cut out um, just because of a disability or impairment. Um, I mean, that's probably a nice segue to, to ask a little bit more about, you know, your two recent um, tech, I guess, um, creations in particular. So. Um, uh, through the Inca project, I believe, but like with the Make Right iPad app, and then obviously um, a little bit more clinical with the decal assessment portal. Um, I'd just be keen to hear a little bit more about those, but it's in particular the Make Right um, app because I think that, from what I can gather, is is pretty geared towards trying to get people to to express their creativity. Yeah, exactly. So um, this really follows in that vein of kind of starting out with this idea of, oh, um, as a therapist who doesn't have aphasia maybe I think I know best what is a helpful thing for me to contribute um, in terms of rehabilitating someone's language actually what you see is that language you know is such a broad thing and, and one of the things that isn't covered in a lot of the research literature is you know how can how can you entertain the idea of doing expressive and creative and emotive um, playful things with language um, with kind of conventional um systems or you know i think for any of us sitting down and being tasked with writing a poem um unless we're a poet or we feel particularly um confident in our expressive ability is quite a daunting prospect um so we looked at what other sort of tools you might um you might employ to make that process a bit more um, tangible a bit more realistic a bit more achievable and so we we hit upon this idea um, based on a, a principle called um, blackout poetry which you may have come across what blackout poetry is is when you have a, a page of text from a book say for example and you basically go through and redact like 90 percent of it so that you just have like little windows of remaining text that form um, a new piece of expression like a little bit of poetry and it's this beautiful form and we kind of 
built on that idea to say, what if you can, rather than you having to conjure up all the words for yourself from the first thing, which is a word finding is like essentially the key challenge in aphasia. What if you get presented with like a, a, a set of words, let's say a block of text that could be a poem, existing poem already, and you can automatically, you can use technology to just raid it and just try and raid it for like 10% of what, what's there. And then you can sort of just play around with that smaller bit of content to come up with something new. And so, yeah, that's what the Make Right app does. And um, it, oh, it's been really well received. Um, we launched it on um, World Poetry Day in 2019. And um, we've had some lovely, um, uh, we've used it within workshops and created like poetry anthologies with it. And um, most recently we've had some famous readers uh, read some of the poems aloud for us and shared some of that on our um, Twitter channel. And um, we'd, it's one of the challenges of the year that we've had is that this point in our project was going to be, this summer was going to be when we did uh, dissemination and we did a big showcase event uh, to share the creative outputs from our project because we've done a painting app we've done um comic app we've done a, a creative writing app make right um throughout the course of this project and all about digital creativity essentially but accessible di digital creativity um and we've not been able to do the physical event uh, that we'd hoped to do um, in central london so we're looking at now kind of sharing some of these things in an online context. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's nice. And it's the nice thing for me about the Make Right app is that we've got to the stage where we've been able to make it free and available on the App Store so that people can access it. The next step for us is to make it available on the Android platform as well so that um, you don't have to have an Apple device to be able to use it. Um, and that's something that's underway at the moment. And what's it like? Um, uh, I imagine this, well, I imagine sort of two things. One is that the approach you're taking in terms of, you know, like you mentioned, shifting a bit away from therapeutics into like accessibility or kind of real world uh, engagement tools um, is, is innovative, I imagine. Um, what's it been like innovating in this space? Is it something that, you know, was readily met with a lot of enthusiasm and excitement or like there was a bit of, Kind of you had to sort of push through the barriers to, to get it on the agenda like how have you been how have you found being someone in this space um trying to trying to do new things particularly around the sort of disability kind of context i think the real power of um being able to achieve that because certainly i remember the first job that i did or my first job interview as a speech therapist was on a research project about computers and i was asked the question what do you say about the prospect that if we do speech therapy on a computer, it will replace us as speech therapists. You know, and I think there's been some reticence around engaging with technology for that reason, you know, um, within speech and language therapy. But for me, the real power of um, the, the reason we've been able to do this innovation is this unique collaboration that we've achieved at City, which is that we've got um, a real meaningful join up between the speech and language therapy the Division of Language and Communication Science, where we train up all the speech therapists, and the Centre for Human Computer Interaction Design. And um, the research grants that we've worked on um, have been 
entirely kind of negotiated between the two methodologies of those two uh, different fields. And we've always then kind of been able to say in one that uh, the reason we're doing this is because this comes from the other area. Whereas I think if I was entirely working in that one of those areas alone, I would have less clout behind me to say, let's try and let's try and do this, you know, so it's really helped. And then most significantly is that kind of then forging those two connections between those two fields, but also um, really engaging with a community of individuals who are living with aphasia um, who've become, you know, stronger and stronger um, proponents and more and more closely engaged uh, at all parts of the research process and the dissemination process over that time has made it more relevant because we're able to say, look, the, the reason for us um, moving into this kind of creative, unexpected, untapped space is because there's a real, there's a real um, appetite for it um, amongst the people who this is going to go out to. So there's no point in us sitting in a little white tower, a little ivory tower and making a thing and it not being of, you know, any interest to the people that you're putting out. I think that's great to hear because I think one of the things around, you know, just uh, like I, I work in the accessibility space and one of the things that we often see is that you'll have, you know, nominally accessible venues because they have a ramp or a, a lift or a accessible, you know, disabled access bathroom. And it's just very, like, it, it's been ticked off the list. You know, somebody's built it, they've, they've built the building, they put the ramp in, they ticked it off and they moved on. But it's not very functional. And this sort of point about if they'd actually engaged properly with disabled people and figured out, well, what do you use it for, how to use it, et cetera, they'd be much more useful. You know, they wouldn't be as steep, they wouldn't, the doors would open out, you know, like there'd be more space for, for people to be inside, et cetera. And I think that's this brilliant point here of when you, when you have kind of a conventional wisdom around something, but then you bring into the designing process, the people who are actually, you know, uh, at least traditionally the subjects or the objects of this kind of investigation actually say, well, what is helpful, etc. You get much more, one, productive, I think, but two, practical and, you know, pragmatic outcomes rather than just sort of, this is something that, you know, is, is probably value-added and definitely useful, but um, in a much more limited sense, just because it's, it's, it's not engaging with people's lived experience and what they need to do day-to-day -day and, and what they want to do day-to-day. -day. So that's awesome to hear. Um, and I guess uh, to push then kind of do this last part of the chat, we'd just love to, I'd just love to speak a little bit more about, I guess, where you see this field going and in particular kind of, you know, your involvement in it. But as a quick kind of segue into that, I imagine, you know, doing computing, particularly around um, this sort of, you know, really advanced understanding of, of human gestures and communication patterns and things like that has only become easier with, um, you know, better computers and smaller computers that have more processing power and things like that. So um, in the sort of field of like machine learning and, and, you know, more advanced pattern recognition and just generally more computing power available to you, um, how do you see that interacting um, with, you know, what you're doing in the field you're working in, both in the sense of like the capacity for what you can do and potentially do, but also in the sense of um, the, I guess, I'm not sure how best to phrase it, but the kind of agenda of these organisations that do machine learning and, you know, um, problem solving, like, how do you see their interest in your work and, in, in, I guess, in, like, really human-focused um, problems? Because, obviously, we hear a lot about, you know, um, Google's DeepMind will pump a ton of money into investigating AlphaGo and, and how to 
play chess and how to you know play board games and, and Atari and things like that. But um, you know, I've heard that there's some work that well, I know that there's some work happening um, in this space that is really focused on you know people and their uh, kind of you know particularly pattern recognition around non-community to people. But I wonder if it's if it's you know a thing that's mainstream in any sense or whether it's still pretty much you know. Uh, you have to kind of advocate really hard to get that sort of collaboration. So yeah, I'd be interested in the kind of what you think the potential is, but also the practical of how to get that up and running. Mm. Well, I'm starting to see encouraging signs. I think what you say about kind of like architecturally building accessibility really resonates with uh, resonates with me with um, in relation to digital accessibility as well. There's um, a set of guidelines about how you make your website compliant for disabilities. Um, so that it's accessible to um, people with disabilities. Um, however, it the you see in just the same way as you might um, in other, you know, in your example, that websites can prove that they are compliant with this legislation, and yet because they've got X Y Z feature, and yet somebody sits down to use it and they can't use it, but the website is compliant, so you know they can't be legally challenged on it. Um, and so there is increasingly a move for inclusion and consideration um, from the outset of a diverse group of users. Um, and so I guess, yeah, there's all sorts of components to this really, but um, one of the things about machine learning, for example, or um, big data, um, which kind of, reveals something about how um, typical design has been done is that if I sit down and try and design something I'm going to design it from my perspective because that's the one that I know and so I'm going to think right if I needed to use a wheelchair how would I want to um, you know get into a building or whatever but the reality is that's me sitting here as a naive user with no lived experience and you know I'm not somebody who's done this every day and you know has a specific understanding of the entire context that goes around it and so there is this um what you see when you get kind of these data sets that have learned from data is that the the sort of data that they've learned on might just be if we think for example about speech recognition which is kind of one of the areas that i'm moving into now um historically speech recognition has been absolutely useful useless for people with atypical speech Okay, so it's never been a solution that we might try and fold into um, a speech and language therapy technology. But now we're moving into a position where we have such big data sets where so they use that it's being trained on uh, so many more voices that it will start to tolerate somebody who, who doesn't have a British BBC accent, you know, it might pick up somebody with um, a Scottish accent, for example, though I understand that's still quite a way off. Um, but basically what you're seeing is that um, more and more people are being taken into account. And so you've got Google, which has Project Euphonia, which is looking specifically at training uh, speech recognition for um, certain user groups with atypical speech. And so um, there's kind of a couple of factors. It's chiefly the awareness raising is the, the first point uh, is that putting people with communication needs on people's radars is the first step to getting them considered and incorporated. And, you know, hopefully one of the kind of broader aims, and it's very much at the beginning of, of kind of this content creation, um, what that we're doing, uh, the technology research that we're doing at the moment is to 
support people to have a bigger digital profile so that um, somebody with a communication impairment does just have a presence. They're just aware they're able to engage in these online forums and communications and just put themselves out there and to provide examples of living with um, aphasia, for example. So there's this kind of awareness level. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the future, what I'd really like to see is, you know, this agenda not being driven by me, um, because as you say, I'm not sitting here with aphasia. I'm here as, some, as somebody who engages with people with aphasia and has an interest in it. But really, it's not my place. My place is to give a mouthpiece at the moment to people with aphasia to drive that agenda. And in the future, I hope that it will be people with aphasia directly who are driving that agenda and who are being heard and who are, you know, very specifically motivating the conversation. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my aspiration, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, projects like Google's, you know, Project Euphonia, like, do you see that becoming more and more the norm that like there are, you know, large organizations, big mainstream institutions looking into, um, you know, these sorts of uh, human-focused, particularly disability-focused, like in like innovation areas, or is that still kind of a little bit, you know, niche and, and potentially hasn't hit that kind of mainstream interest yet? Well, there's um, it is increasingly coming about, and I think there's a couple of reasons for it. I think um, you know, the social conscience of um, big firms is being scrutinised more closely. Um, so there's a motivation for them to be seen to be doing positive um, kind of um, things for society um, but you know bluntly there's like the business case for it as well you know there's a whole extra market that they could tap into um, and often I've seen that's what actually critically makes the difference for convincing a big company to do something is that they kind of can suddenly see what they call it the purple pound you know the idea that um, if you um, broaden your marketplace then more people can spend money there and um, by making things available to a wider group, um, then you can make more profits. <laughs> if that's the, you know, if that's the context that you need to convince people to um, to to undertake business things in, then you know that's sort of the framing you have to put on it. It's definitely an interesting one, isn't it? It's a bit of a double-edged sword because you sort of think the equality argument should be strong enough, but in some sense you need to speak the language of these businesses. But in another sense, it is kind of it is equalising because they think about everybody else in a <laughs> commercial sense and if they can extract money from them. So it's probably you know it's it's even playing field if they also apply that to disabled people. But um, I definitely I definitely see the tension there. Um, and there's another thing I just wanted to mention. I, I've come across the a colleague of mine who did a PhD about situational disability. And I don't know if you've come across this. So this is the idea that, um, you know, um, any of us can be temporarily experienced of uh, an impairment. So, you know, somebody who doesn't typically use a wheelchair might break their leg one day and would need to use a wheelchair for a certain amount of time. Or somebody who would typically use two hands to engage with a device might be carrying something in their arm one time and would need to operate a device with one hand. So, um, or similarly, if you've got glare in your eyes, then it's harder for you to see a screen so that you might want to think about if you can use audio cues to complete some action or something. And um, similarly, what we've seen when we've created these guidelines for usability, we've created some general digital interaction guidelines for what we call language light. UX, so uh, how you can engage, uh, how you can make um, um, a digital interaction that is light on the language needs of the user. Um, what we've seen when we've talked about those in an accessibility context is that um, 
everyone goes, oh, actually, do you know what? If you put those changes in place, that would make it easier for everyone to use. And that's the broader context is that actually, you know, thinking about somebody who might not be like you when you're designing, it could actually make it easier for you as well in certain contexts. So this kind of broader design guidelines. For sure. I think this, you know, this curb cut effect is super important that the idea that you make things more accessible and inclusive, everybody benefits, not just the people who need it, but, you know, on the whole, uh, by designing for kind of more, under more constraints, you just end up with a better product generally. I think that's definitely a really good, you know, takeaway point. Um, I mean, two final questions before we wrap up. One, I just wanted to ask you, um, where do you see your work in 10 years time? So, you know, uh, where do you hope it ends up and, and sort of the space, what does the space look like that you're working in in 10 years time? I wish I, wish I knew. Um, <laughs> I guess so much exciting stuff has already happened. I feel like we're more engaged now with, um, personally more engaged with communities uh, than I have been at any previous point in my career. So uh, getting stuff out there from a research journal to the people who it affects is better now than it used to be. I mean, I'd hope that, like a big aim for me is that if I said to somebody I work in aphasia, they'd go, oh yeah, I know what that is. At present, that just doesn't happen. Um, but, you know, we're, we're working on kind of all that we can to try and raise awareness. And then I think the offset of that is that then they, as soon as aphasia is on people's radar, empathy improves, you'd stop encountering the kind of, um, negative reactions about um, misunderstandings about um, somebody's cognitive or decision-making ability or any other aspects of their life and like you say that you things these becomes normalized so you just see people with aphasia as a human person <laughs> uh, with a different communication style um, but they have the same aspirations and needs and desires and wants that anyone else might have which sounds so, which sounds so silly when you have to say it out loud, but it's obviously oh, a, a pretty novel mad. concept to a fair few people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a final question, Abby, is just uh, what would you say to you know Abby two point you know who's who is now where you were you know at the start of your career, thinking about going into an area that, like you said, you know potentially didn't have the most obvious you know career path or you had to go and find it out or it was just something they were passionate in and they were you know in a more specific context thinking about going to the disability space and wanting to make a change and wanting to innovate but not really sure how to go about it what's like a piece of advice you'd give to to an abby 2.0 thinking about starting their journey today um i think the things that have been really helpful for me is like if you're going to spend your career doing it how passionate do you feel about it? Like, wh what is the bit of this that excites you? What's the bit that interests you most? Like, mm -hmm. and even if there's not a conventional path for that, you know, go towards the things that allow you to connect with that because that's going to motivate you to work harder to get to the next step. So um, how, how much fire does it put in your belly, I suppose? And then I guess the other factor about it is that if you see it and it puts a fire in your belly and it makes you feel scared, then that's the one you've got to run towards because that's you know if it's easy you won't get the satisfaction out of it but like if you feel nervous about it speak to someone quickly and get them to convince you to do it <laughs> or to, <laughs> to tell you that it's the wrong thing but like yeah kind of facing facing the thing and you know throw in your your 10 pence worth in or whatever the right metaphor is um uh, you know throwing your hat in that's the one isn't it um 
for me that's been what's paid off it's been the kind of uniqueness about me and not the kind of way that I've followed other people's patterns that has benefited me cool I think that's definitely you know spot on advice for particularly this area and then the way in which it's changing and all the innovation that's coming but also just too more broadly I think particularly in a 2020 onwards you know we'll, we'll realize that the nobody really knows what's happening at, at any point at any time anyway so there's no point sort of trying to to follow um some path that that doesn't sound right because it's you know conventional and quote unquote but um just something that drives your passion i think is a much better and reliable sense of of direction um awesome abby well thank you so much you know dr abby roper thank you for being on on the inclusive internet podcast it's been an awesome uh, last uh, chat with you for the last half an hour or so um, i really appreciate you taking the time so um look forward to um seeing how your work goes and following the make right app and the other projects that come out of the Inca project um, and just generally your research and, and yeah I look forward to that day when um, you can uh, come on the next podcast and say you work in aphasia and we say well, awesome we know what that is yeah, next and sure. next on That'd we go be lovely. thank <laughs> you so much for having me thanks for listening next week we're talking to John Kelly from Drake Music do you want to take part in the Elise program or be part of our community to find out more visit www ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capsule Enterprise, Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexel, London College of Fashion and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.